Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Take that. Uh, I am not going to dance. And you'll be glad. Ask that you pray with me one more time. Lord, we thank you. For all the good that you are doing there in Russia. And uh, help us, Lord, to help them in any way that we can. We are such a blessed people here in the United States. We don't know, you know, even how others live. It's good to see those kind of things. And uh, through the good work that they're doing and that Rita's a part of. And I pray, Lord, as we as we turn to your word, that you would just, you know, every heart that is in this room, you know, where they are at with you. I pray your word would go into my heart and into their heart and do the work that you would have it do. That's in your name. Amen. Thank you. I read this week a true story about a woman who locked her keys in her car in a very rough part of town. She tried a coat hanger to try to break into her car, but she couldn't do it. Finally, she prayed, God, please send me someone to help me. Five minutes later, a rusty old car pulled up. A tattooed, bearded man wearing a biker skull rag walked towards her. She thought, God, really? Him? But she was desperate. So when the man asked if he could help, she said, can you break into my car? He said, that is not a problem. He took the coat hanger, and in just a few seconds, the door was open. She said to him, you're a very nice man, and gave him a big hug. He replied, actually, I'm not a nice man. I just got out of prison today. In fact, I just served two years for auto theft, and I've only been out a couple of hours. She hugged him again and shouted, Thank you, God, for sending me a professional. When I read that, I thought, sometimes God can use the strangest people as an answer to our prayers. No doubt David had prayed a multitude of times to finally be king over all of Israel. And today we will see God using a surprising person to do just that. Look at verse 17 with me. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. After switching his allegiance to David, Abner tells everyone to switch. You delighted in David and wanted to follow him, now do it. 
Abner said, now then, just do it. And that's the part that I want us to get. Now then, do it. In the past, you've heard the gospel preached. In the past, you've seen the beauty of Christ. In the past, you've desired a closer walk and fellowship with him. In the past, you desired to devote your life to him in service. In the past, you knew that the church and the things of the kingdom should be a greater priority in your life. So I would exhort you, now is the time to do it. Not tomorrow, not next week, but I challenge you to make a commitment this morning. Now is the time to resolve to follow through on that commitment. Paul would later, later write in 2 Corinthians 6.1, he says, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why? Because we are in dire need of help. I have lost count of how many times I've heard someone say that Christianity is a crutch for weak-minded people who cannot make it without faith. That may be. But we're not the only ones who lean on something. Do you know how many people use drugs and alcohol and materialism as a crutch to get through life. The dismal fact of that matter is those sorts of crutches tend to snap and leave the person in a worse state. However, faith in God is not like that. He will never let you down. In this short life or in the life to come, you can lean on him. I don't have to be concerned about the troubles of the future because the future is in his hands. He is already there. And so nothing takes him by surprise. And really, a crutch is a poor metaphor for the Savior. It's more accurate to say that Jesus is like a parachute. And that death is a fearful jump into eternity. But it's not just enough to believe in Christ that he can save you. You actually have to do something about it. If you're on a plane and it was about to crash and they handed you a parachute, it would do you absolutely no good to believe that that parachute can save you. You would have to actually put the parachute on. Just like that, Romans 13:14 says we should put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, or ensure about it in any way, I plead with you to talk to someone today about that. Verse 19, please. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, 
that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Now David has already been acknowledged as king by Samuel the prophet. But perhaps the people were waiting to see if David would step up and take control. Consequently, there will be a seven and one half year battle to see who will ultimately gain control of the throne. Now, if you remember from the last time we were together, that during this time, Abner sees that Saul's son Ishbosheth is a man who's not particularly gifted, strong, or capable. In fact, his name means man of shame. Abner realizes that if anything is going to get done, it's going to be up to him. So he begins to consolidate an even greater degree of power. Now, Abner's name means enlightening. And Abner was a man who spent most of his life fighting against David. But there came a time when he turned around and he joined David. As such, he is a wonderful illustration and an important picture of people who spend most of their lives fighting against the son of David. Jesus Christ. But finally, they become enlightened and they begin to follow him. Now, what was the result of Abner's change of allegiance? In preaching a simple message and telling the people to follow David, little did Abner know that 18,000 fighting men would transfer their allegiance from the house of Ishbosheth to become part of the kingdom of David. Now, the same can be true of you. The one simple message that you preach with your life as you change allegiance can make all the difference in the world. Therefore, I call upon us to consider if the Lord is allowing unhappiness and uneasiness to take place in our lives because perhaps our allegiance isn't solid and perhaps our commitment isn't sincere. Who are you fighting for? What side are you really on? I urge you to turn to him today, for he will abundantly pardon. Verse 22, please. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away. He had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away, and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. Now David had sent some of his men and Joab on a raid to secure wealth to help support the kingdom. On his return, when Joab heard that David had received Abner and given him a feast, his anger erupts and he rebukes the king. Now the key idea in this paragraph is that Saul's general and the man who killed young Asahel had come and gone in peace, and Joab simply couldn't understand it. We have to remember that his own heart was still pained at the death of his brother. And so Joab can't understand the king's policies. Joab was certain 
that Abner's visit had nothing to do with turning the kingdom over to David. He thought that the wily Abner was only spying out the situation and getting ready for an attack. So with biting sarcasm, Joab asserted that David knew what he clearly did not know. Surely you must have known that he has come to deceive you. What kind of fool would not know that? Now, of course, Joab was attempting, without any attempt at subtlety, to say that Abner has succeeded in deceiving David. He'd come to Hebron, spot out what he wanted to know about David's affairs, and now, thanks to the king's utter stupidity, he now has the upper hand. Now, the text records no reply from David. But David's silence wasn't that of agreement because he did not agree with his general. It was the silence of restraint and evidence of the deep desire to put the nation back together again. David wasn't promoting peace at any price because he was a man of integrity. But he wasn't prepared to let his impetuous general conduct a personal vendetta in the name of the king. Verse 26. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. Now, when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside at the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So we see Abner, in effect, changing allegiances and now deciding to follow the true king. But here's what I want us to see. Was it an easy transition for Abner? No, it was not. After Abner went and proclaimed to his own people the importance of switching sides to follow David, he then met with Joab, who was David's general. And Joab deceives Abner under the guise of wanting to talk to him privately, and then he murders him in cold blood. Why would I bring that out? I ask you, is the Christian life easy? Does changing sides to the king of glory mean that all your problems will now vanish, and your life will now be marked by nothing but ease and comfort? No, it does not. As a matter of fact, your problems may actually increase because now the forces of evil have a reason to focus their attention on you because you have switched allegiances. So is it worth it? Not only is it worth it, it's the only way to live a life that has purpose down here and everlasting bliss when this very short life finally ends. What I'm saying is Jesus didn't come to give us an easy life. He came to give us, the Bible says, an abundant life. And that word doesn't necessarily mean better, richer, and happier. If you study the life of the Apostle Paul, you will find that it was indeed a full life. It was full of trials. It was full of tribulations, and it was full of persecutions. It was a full life, sure enough. He was hated, beaten, mocked, whipped, stoned, imprisoned, 
and finally martyred. Now, I'm not trying to bring us down this morning, but this stuff is more important than just life and death. The stuff we are dealing with every Sunday morning are eternal matters, and they deserve sober consideration. So now Joab sends a message to Abner to come back, to come back to the gate of the city of Hebron. Now Hebron was a city of refuge. It's a city of refuge, and so if you had been accused of some kind of crime and yet you were innocent, you could run from the avenger of blood to the city of refuge, and no one could touch you. You could not kill someone then as an avenger of blood. And yet Joab will kill Abner in the stomach, just as Abner had killed Asahel. That is why he wanted to meet him outside of the city gate. David had received him and negotiated with him, and now Joab's nephew would kill him. You think you got problems in your family. Now Abner is pretty sneaky, but he's about to meet his match in Joab. Someone once told me that God has a custom-made board for every behind. That's in Habakkuk somewhere, I think. You might think you are winning, but you aren't. It's like the rebellious teenager who is sick of rules, and so he runs away from home and joins the Marines. Joab is going to deceive Abner and kill him. But think about this. Joab accused Abner of being a liar, but now he practices deception himself. I wonder how often we are guilty of the sins that we condemn in others. That's a whole other sermon. Now Joab had assured the king that Abner had come to Hebron to deceive him. And now Joab deceives Abner. Scripture says this concerning God. Psalm 18.25 With the kind you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. Case in point. In Genesis, we learn of a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob had no problem lying to his father if it suited him. If you remember, he dressed up like Chewbacca and put on some of his brother's clothes so he could smell like him. So now he's hairy and he's wearing that fine cologne midnight at the cow pasture. So he can smell like his brother Esau. And sure enough, it works. He fools his father Isaac who gives him the blessing of the firstborn. So now he runs away and he ends up with a guy over him named Laban. Now Laban has a doctorate in deceit. This is the custom-made board that I mentioned a little earlier. And so Laban gets Jacob to work seven years for him for the hand of his daughter, Rachel. But on the honeymoon night, he gets Jacob a little drunk, and he does the old switcheroo by substituting Leah for his sister, Rachel. Now follow me here. Jacob is deceived in the dark, just like he deceived his blind father. And now he is cheated, just like he cheated his brother. Now he has to work seven more years for the hand of Rachel. But the best part of the story is where it says, But in the morning, 
behold, it was Leah. That's always the way that it is with sin. You think you're winning, but then you wake up and you look at what's lying beside you. And like a wolf caught in a trap, you just want to gnaw your arm off and quietly make your way out of the room. John Coffey, if you ever want to paint a picture of Jacob's face, as soon as he rolls over and first sees Leah, I'll buy the first print. But back to the Bible. So Joab did to Abner just what Abner had done to his brother sometime earlier, if you remember the incident from chapter 2. But in case we miss the symbolism of the identical killings, the narrator explicitly tells us that Joab's motivation was for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Verse 28, please. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. Let there never fail to be in the house of Joab, one who has a discharge, or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, who, who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner, whilst he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. When David heard the news of Abner's death, he immediately disclaimed any part in what Joab had done. In fact, he went so far to call down a curse on the house of Joab, naming some of the plagues that Moses had warned about in the covenant. I'm surprised he didn't include the botch. Now, I don't know what the botch is. I just know that I don't want it. It sounds like really itchy to me. But Joab was not unlike Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, who thought his own violent strength could save Jesus. Remember that? Peter cut off one of the servant's ears, and then Jesus had to do a Mr. Potato Head thing and reattach it. Now, Jesus' response to Peter emphatically rejected what his disciple had done. He said, put your sword back in the sheath, so I not drink the cup that the Father has given me. That teaches us that the cause of Christ can never be advanced by disgraceful or underhanded ways. Like Jesus and his apostle, David immediately and emphatically distanced himself from what Joab had done. And yet, amazingly, Joab still has value. I point this out because, as we will see in the next chapter, Joab will become David's chief of staff and will hold his post throughout David's entire 40-year reign. I bring that out because, like Joab, we are also flawed. Well, not me. I just say that for your benefit. If you are a visitor, I'm just kidding. Yet, just as David used Joab, the son of David would use us if we will make ourselves available to him, flawed as we all are. Verse 33, And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, or your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. 
Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God do to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And now I am weak today, though anointed king and these men, the sons of Zeruah, are too harsh for me. The Lord will repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Just a couple comments here at the end. This lament was very pointed. The open rhetorical question gave perspective on what had happened. Abner's death had been like the death of a fool. Now, the word fool suggests moral and spiritual stupidity. Psalm 14 says, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. So for the fool, his heart is always busy with iniquity. Now, as was the case in lament and in the earlier lament over Saul and Jonathan, these unqualified positive words were about the man who died. They must be understood in their context. David was responding to the death of one who could have been regarded as his enemy, but still saw his death as a tragedy. And the tragedy of death lies in the good that has been lost. What happened to Abner is not right, David said. He didn't deserve to die like he did. He wasn't killed because of some wrong that he had committed. He died foolishly because he was seduced and tricked and lured out of the city. You see, as we referenced earlier in Old Testament times, if a man killed someone and it wasn't an act of murder, as Abner had not done, he could find protection from his victim's avengers. In fact, if you remember, Abner begged Asahel at least three times to go back home. He did not want to kill that boy. So by running to one of the six cities of refuge located throughout Israel, he can now be safe. If, however, he stepped out of the city, he would no longer be protected. Hebron was a city of refuge. That is why Joab had to meet Abner at the gate in order to kill him. In closing, Jesus Christ is our refuge. Don't be lured away from him, my friends, or else you'll lose the safety, security, satisfaction, and protection that he offers us. Abner was a great warrior, but he died as a fool because he stepped away from the city of refuge. Don't let this happen to you. Stay within the city of refuge under the shadow of the wings of the Lord. And Christ is the only refuge from the coming storm of judgment. He is the only source of salvation offered, and yet the vast majority of mankind will walk away from him. And then they must face God in their own righteousness, which, trust me, is a very bad idea. Okay. What have we seen so far in the book of 2 Samuel? We have seen sex, 
nefarious behavior, murder, intrigue, war games, greed, dysfunctionality, and political power plays. It's like an episode of Jerry Springer. But this is the Bible. This is not a children's book. This is the story of David. This is the story of how God is going to use his promise to send a Savior. But to just read this, all of this seems like such a hot mess. I only have one point. The story of redemption isn't the story of enchanted woods and unicorns. It's Jesus choosing 12 men who are an absolute dumpster fire the entire time they walked with him. These guys did not walk around with halos over their heads. We could have called them Jesus and the Dirty Dozen, and it would have fit. Now, here's what I want you to get. They weren't perfect, but they were being perfected. And that is the story of redemption. This is reality. This is the world that we live in. Just pick up a newspaper, and what are you going to read? Basically, the book of Second Samuel, to one degree or the other. So we see that God in his providence uses people just like that. Just like that man from our first story. He uses it out of messes like that. Out of appalling messes. God will fulfill his purpose. Do you ever want a confidence that God's purposes are providential? If you wanted proof that God was on the throne, I mean, you wouldn't write this story. If you're trying to write the story of redemption from man's place, it would be a fantasy tale. It would be about knights and shining armor and not about a story that in which we see and there's all this lurid, horrible mess. But we can read this story and see the hand of an omnipotent and sovereign God. And then you won't find yourself saying, where is God in our world today? Where is God's promises? It's right here. God uses even the wicked to fulfill his purpose. And he can do the same thing in your life this morning if you will allow him to. And Father, that is the prayer of myself and everyone in here. We ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us wherever we are at. I pray that you would burst through by your Holy Spirit in the way that only you can. We ask you to do that in Christ's name. Amen.